Hi, this is Mark. First of all, thank you for listening. You're about to hear part two of Blaster Podcast episode 45, which is all about cannibalism and features game designer and writer Kenneth Height. But before we dive in, I wanted to say a few things. I read an article about podcasting recently that struck me, like in an unpleasant way, a way that got under my skin and still continues to bother me. It made me reflect on why I podcast and what it means to succeed or fail in this medium. My goal right now is not to quibble with the author of the article. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. doesn't matter if I disagree. People are allowed to say what they want and think what they want. But the insecurities and the negativity that this article brought out of me are not so fun. Okay, that's my baggage. It's nobody else's fault. But if reading the article did that to me, then it or similar sentiments might have the same effect on you. And I don't like that. So if you're a podcaster, or really any kind of creator, and you feel like you're failing, or somebody out there makes you feel like what you're making is stupid, I want to offer you some of my opinions that I'd like you to consider. First, if the act of creation is worthwhile to you, then what you've created is worthwhile. Maybe you make the world's ugliest glass Christmas ornaments, but if heating up that wad of glass into a fiery orange blob mesmerizes you, and expanding it out, shaping it with your breath gives you a jolt of excitement, then what you're doing, regardless of whether the final product meets your expectations, what you're doing is valid. You're not making the ornaments because that's what someone your age is supposed to do. You're not making them for the endorsement deal or the Twitter followers or the fan page. You're making those ugly ornaments because that's what you like to do. The only way you could fail is if you never tried to do it. And even worse than failing to try is convincing someone else to give up. This is not to say that you need to make those ornaments for the rest of your life, but you choose when it stops being worthwhile. Nobody else gets to do that. Thing number two. Even if you never make any money with your creation, if it connects you to other people in a meaningful way, then you are successful. Now, I make my own absurd, commercially unfeasible podcasts, things that would never exist if profit were the goal. But the special thing is that I can put that weird, unique, strange stuff out there on the internet, and someone out there can check it out and message me to let me know that it cheered them up that day. I'm not saving lives. I'm not even paying the rent with this, but I am doing something for someone. And that is success. By the way, it doesn't matter if your creation is rough and unpolished. If it is authentic, then it is going to connect with someone on some level. And that connection, that link between the creator and the appreciator is a phenomenon that is more meaningful than your iTunes ranking. And it's true. You can't pay the rent with meaningful interactions, but if you give up creating that special thing because there's no money in it, then you better find something just as meaningful to take its place. Now, the final thing is more self-indulgent, but it's still valuable, and that is a podcast episode captures a moment in people's lives. It preserves it, and it shares it with whoever wants to listen. Most of the guests on my podcast are people from my life, and some of them are very dear to me. And someday, hopefully in the distant future, when I'm languishing in my hospital bed, I can pull up these conversations, these moments with people I love, and I can be there again, sitting around our cheap little microphone, making each other laugh. And if I die, anyone who cares to can keep a little fragment of me tucked away, a snapshot of a good time that we can share again. What you create now is also what you leave behind for those who love you. And that's why I don't want to stop creating. Now, my final thoughts are that the article I read opened up 
all sorts of insecurities in me, and after some reflection, my reaction was not to invalidate the author, but instead to attack the fear and the envy and the shame that were coiled up inside of me all along. So the best medicine I could find was to create what you just heard. I hope that it encourages you to keep doing that which is meaningful. Connect with each other, support each other, and be kind to yourselves. Let's continue to have fun and make stuff. Thank you. Thank you for bearing with me and enjoy the episode. Happy Halloween, everybody. It's me. Um, what's my... Hello, this is Punctore Doctobin. Happy Halloween. They asked us not to read an ad, but they can't control the actions of a pumpkin. This episode of Cards Against Humanity is brought to you by Blastro Podcast. I'm a pumpkin man, and I'm hanging out on a windowsill. They asked me not to read this ad, but I did it. Anyway, thanks for the candy. And now for part two of Blaster Podcast, all about cannibalism, featuring Ken Height of the Game Design Room Writer. Enjoy it while you can. talked about all sorts of cannibalisms, but when people think about an American cannibal, typically their mind goes to serial killers who eat their victims. Right. You could classify this type of cannibalism as pathological. When somebody eats somebody else, not as part of a religious ceremony, not as part of a ritual, not to survive, just to be a jerk. (laughs) Or to fulfill some inner thing they have going on. A compulsion. A compulsion that most of society doesn't have or doesn't act out on. This is what we consider pathological cannibalism. Pathological cannibalism. Yeah. Right. So uh, we look at a Jeffrey Dahmer or an Albert Fish and we say, don't do what Johnny Cannibal does. Don't be eating people off the street. Don't be eating them for your weirdo sexual proclivities. Don't be eating them because you're a crazy person. It's wrong and bad. But if you are Jeremiah Johnson, beloved mountain man, a.k.a. liver-eaten Johnson, you get movies made about how cool you are because you ate the liver of Crow Indians because the Crow Indians got up your nose once and made you steamed. What? And liver-eaten Johnson probably... Over his lengthy career, his very lengthy career of mountain manning, may have eaten 100, 200 people, or at least their livers. He would eat the livers out of the the Crow Indians that he would run across in his day and leave the body just lying out missing a liver as a little signal to say, don't be climbing my mountain, I am on it. Wow. And this guy was still alive in the 1880s, right? And, and he was celebrated for this? He was honored and celebrated, and they wrote ballads and stories and said, pointed him out on the street and not in a 
Ooh, there he is, the guy who ate a bunch of human livers, but hey, there you go, that's Jeremiah Johnson. He's a mountain man. He's a thousand times the man you'll ever be, Jimmy. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to spoil I Am Legend for all... <laughs> uh, can you spoil it more than Brian Grazier already spoiled it? <laughs> I'm going to ruin it for everybody who might want to read it instead of watch Will Smith do a fake wrong version of it. Yeah. Um, This reminds me of when... um. What's the guy's name? Herman Melvin Neville. Neville. Thank you. Yeah. It's one of those little wiener names. One of those names. This reminds me of at the end when Neville looks out the window and sees the city of the vampire people and they're all afraid of him because he has been murdering them at night. He is the night terror, right? He is legend. Yeah. Yeah. Except uh, Mountain Man Johnson has that going on, but the opposite, where they're like, hey, there's the monster. Good job. Good job. Well monstered, monster. I mean, I don't think that you sort of... He went ogre on him. ...went around and, uh, you know, showed off your liver to him. I don't think you sort of painted your side with Worcestershire sauce and said, have a bite. I paint my side with Worcestershire sauce for other reasons. Other reasons. To I think seal it in. Even if you had those reasons, you might not do it around liver eating Johnson. Does he know that I'm a cow Indian? He might. Oh, no! <laughs> Here's the thing, right? If he's eaten your liver and left you to rot on the side of a mountain, someone comes across your dead body... Mm-hmm. The wolves and such have pecked away all your non-Crow Indian uh, uh, accoutrementé. That's just going to go on that Crow Indian list. They're not going to think, oh, that was a Renaissance man. That was a, that was a Renaissance dottore. Sadly, wound up in the Rocky Mountains in the 18-teens or 20s. I'm not sure if I'm a time traveler or if I'm immortal. Let's it, just get that well, out there right now. If you'd run into Liver Eaton Johnson, we could have figured out one of them. So what was Liver Eaton Johnson's vocation? He was a he was a trapper. He trapped animals. Trapped animals, and he sold sold the, the pelts to other people. Yeah, and he was applauded for his murderousness. Yeah, because he was murdering folks that many of the people he was selling furs to, by and large, your fellow Americans were perfectly happy to see driven away. Right, because was, the, the white man dehumanized the Native American to such an extent that eating them was not abhorrent, or was at least. A interesting personal sidelight as opposed to signs of incipient serial killer mania. Now, when you use the word sidelight, yeah. you're not just talking about my poor theater lighting design. No, I'm not just talking about it. What I'm you... alluding to it. That's what writers do. When you're, when you're sidelighting me, is that when you're telling me I'm crazy for having emotions? No, that's when I'm telling you you're crazy for not having a mirror on the side of your car. To make it look bigger? Exactly. Of course! Of course! Kent, what does sidelight mean? As I'm not Robin D. Laws. <laughs> You're not Robin D. Laws. I only have one I master's know. degree. Much smaller beard. Uh, Robin, Robin has a, a smaller beard? beard. No, he has a small beard. Well, I, being de Torre Belordo, as you know, I'm clean shaven, save for my white mustache. Your white mustache. At any rat. Unless um, you watch that video that I'm in, then I have a beard. Then you have a beard. Well, that's to throw off your enemies. That's right. And yes. uh, get more patrons on board the old de Torre train. The old de Torre Etrano. The uh, no, the sidelight would simply be a a, a separate habit, a, another thing that you'd know about them, a quirk, a darling character flaw. Hmm. So I'm like, oh well, you know, he's a lot of fun when he's drunk. You're not saying I approve of drinking, but you're like, I don't mind that guy even when he's drunk. Oh. right. Sidelight. 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 The funk song. <laughs> yeah. All right, we're getting off on a tangent. <laughs> we certainly are. So. There was a bad mountain man, what, eight livers? Yeah. Or actually, an excellent mountain man. I mean, as mountain manning goes. <laughs> Pretty successful. He was super good at it. 
He died of liver sickness. He, I think he just died of being very old. Mm. Maybe he died of liver shortage because oh. he wasn't eating a lot of livers anymore. And if he'd gotten used to all that extra iron. He got hooked. He got hooked. Yeah. Had the liver sickness. He needs it. Got to soak it in milk overnight. Mm, so tasty. I don't know. Fry it up with onions. Who can say? <laughs> uh, let's get back to the evil cannibals. The evil cannibals. That everyone and again, can agree. if you're a Crow Indian, I think you thought he was an evil cannibal. That's kind of my point, yes. right? Yes. You're Jean Bedel Bocassa and you're Idi Amin eating people in their country. Mm-hmm. We're like, you're an evil guy. Mm-hmm. But they're like, hey, it's my country. I can do what I want. I write the rules. I make the rules. They think they're in the Matrix. Right. And they can do exactly. whatever they please. And so you have any number of people who engage in one or another uh, uh, set of activities, and it's harder than you would like it to be to point the figure and say, that guy's crazy, that guy's just crazy mad at somebody, mm-hmm. right? And in, you know, in Jeffrey Dahmer's mind, when he's eating people, he's doing it for some kind of weirdo magical reason that involves uh, robot sex slaves in heaven, and you and I say, I'm going to bet that that's not going to happen. But is it innately crazier than eating the nose of a dead Tibetan Lama because you think you're going to have his power to uh, be one with the uh, illusionary universe? I don't know. Yes. I'm not here to... Yes, it I'm is. a Dottore. It is. It is. Shall Thank God the Dottore is here to <laughs> tell us yes. don't worry. Dottore yes. has arrived. He has because arrived. Here's the thing. It's okay. If your society agrees that spirits and demons speak to you and can influence you and talk if everyone agrees then it's not crazy but if they all say that can't be and then someone hears the voices of demons or spirits then they are crazy that's the way crazy works so it's a vote it's a vote it's a majority rule you're like thomas zaz you're like craziness is socially constructed is thomas zaz that bad guy from batman could be probably kenny o'neill put a lot of bad guys in batman (laughs) But, uh, so, my, I will posit that Dahmer is crazier than someone who has learned the ritual practice of eating their dead. And even, I would say, crazier than a guy who eats a bunch of livers to make a political point. We might say still, all right, that seems extreme. That seems wrong. That seems like something we should not condone. But it's maybe not crazy. Right, it's, it's sort of a form of terrorism. Yeah, if you view right. terrorism as a form of communication, yeah, saying "get off my land" or "get out of here" or something like that, he is saying he's sending a message yeah, through his a really strong, unmissable message. <laughs> right, <laughs> like your liver, get off my mountain. Get off my mountain. Get off my plane. Stop pestering me. Yeah, don't be a crow Indian. Don't be a crow That's Indian on advice. this mountain, yeah, buddy. Not not this one. Not any of the convenient nearby mountains either. Um, Dahmer, however, yeah. Had his own He's bananas. Yeah. He's nuts. Bonanas. Mm -hmm. Faulty wiring, perhaps. Maybe. Or the things that drive them to act out, drive them to act out against whatever social taboo they are running up against. Right? If they're like, I want to do this thing that is horrifically wrong. Right? I want to have robot sex lives in heaven. Who doesn't? Well, nobody. Except Jeffrey Dahmer, it turns out. Every man's dream. (laughs) Well... Not so much a dream as an idle fancy, but uh, but then you're like, well, this is so wrong. Maybe for this to be right, everything else that's wrong also has to be right, including cannibalism. That's an interesting idea. If you have a desire that is so wrong, so, that is so out of sync with reality, 
you have to break reality in order to make your desire okay. Yeah. And that's and that I think is part of what impels a lot of modern cannibalism. You're German guys that eat each other on the internet. Yeah, the, right? the penis eater. Pe- well, all manner of bits. Penises uh, are, I suppose, big in Germany. I mean, they're not big in well, Germany, you know I what I mean? Know. But I mean, anyway. I, I've never seen. Dettore, perhaps you can speak to this more. I know about Italy. <laughs> yeah. They're just all right. They're just okay. Um, so, the, uh, so that is, again, a sort of a nihilistic response, I think, to all society saying all social rules are bogus, therefore I will disobey one of the loudest and most insistent social rules, and I'll eat people. Mm-hmm. And because I don't want to go to even pretend German prison, I will, you know, advi- ad- advertise on the internet, and since I'm in Germany, I'll be, you know, having to pick through applicants to determine who I eat, <laughs> as opposed to in, you know, Britain or somewhere where it's like you'd be hissing in a byword. Simply not done. Right, exactly. Can... Maybe. Except in the Navy under very specified conditions. Right. So join the Navy, kids. Maybe Germany's just ahead of the curve. Well, or, you know, if the curve is like over the edge of the waterfall, <laughs> they're at the bottom of the waterfall. Doesn't mean we're not going there. I mean, Trump's America. I think things are going to change a little bit. You think maybe a little, uh, little cannibalism? Maybe Trump's steak is going to come back around? I think Trump will identify the people who are allowed to be eaten if they go over the mountain. Right. Okay, there you go. I think you and I have an idea. We're going to have a little more exo-cannibalism. Well, as long as we don't have the quota cannibalism. Yes, quota cannibalism. You don't want to have the, you got to eat so many of everybody or else someone's going to be mad on the internet about it. Quota cannibalism really takes the fun out of it. Yeah, frankly. And, you know, what if you just don't feel like, you know, eating bohemians today? At least you know they're locally sourced and organic. That is good. That's a good thing about the Bohemians, because they've got the Reinheitsgebot. They're artisanal. Exactly. What's a Reinheitsgebot? That's the German beer purity law. It has nothing to do with Bohemian cannibalism, but I like saying it. Yeah, it's a good one. Right. I like Kunstlerroban. Yes, if I'd thought ahead, I could have said Slovakians, and we could have uh, led into uh, Elizabeth Bathory. Who was yes. a Hungarian. Who I am surprised we have yet to bring up because you're like Dr. Dracula over Dr. here. Dr. Dracula, exactly. And Elizabeth Bathory is an, a famous historical monster. Indeed she is. Who she is. Bathory us. Bathory you. Bathory, Elizabeth Bathory was a noble woman. She was of noble heritage in Hungary in the 16th century. And she was married off to a guy named Ferenc Nazdi. And Ferenc was a bad dude. He had all manner of uh, hitting lady and drinking and cheating and going to war type problems. But as long as he did them all when he was going to war, they weren't Elizabeth Bathory's problems. And she was left alone to run the castle. And uh, whether or not it was his ill treatment or just uh, having a screw loose previously or being a awful person anyway, she decided that as long as she's just running the castle, she'll run it to her own personal tastes and murder a bunch of servant girls. And then when Ferenc Nazdi died and she was running the whole shooting match. She sort of got super extreme and murdered a whole, whole bunch of servant girls. Now, was it always girls? Did she ever murder As far as we know, she murdered only servant girls. Why? There are multiple versions of this story. Version one, she just crazy. She just crazy. That's who she want to murder. Version two, which I have to say in Elizabeth Bathory's defense, not a phrase I say a lot, only appears in the historical record 150 years after her exsanguination. Her exsanguination, uh, it, by written by Jesuits who were not fond of Elizabeth Bathory because, in between being a murdering witch, she was also a Protestant. Uh, they <laughs> uh, said 
that what the reason she murdered the, the young ladies was in order to bathe in their blood so that she would become young. Yes, I have. I've heard of this, and I know very little about bathroom. Right, and that this is what I think uh, the finest filmmakers in all the land focus on. Right, is a naked lady stepping in and out of a bathtub full of blood, and you see this. Uh, I want to say over and over. I see it over and over. I hope you don't see it over and over. I hope you're decent folk out there in podcast America and all the ships at sea. And podcast South Africa. And podcast South Africa. And thank you for listeners. Yay. And even podcast Germany and Belgium. What the heck? Oh, yeah. Sorry we slammed you so much. (laughs) But try not to be cannibals and or brutal genocidaires next time, and maybe you won't get nailed on a podcast. Yeah, and podcast Congo. I've got my eye on you, Yeah, yeah. You don't get off easy just because the Belgians are dicks. Podcast Central African Republic. What are you doing listening to that cannibal guy? Anyway. I'm not a cannibal anymore. (laughs) I kicked the habit. Kicked the habit. I just, I, I... I meant uh, Jean-Bedel Bocasa, but sure. Oh. You too. Anyway. Elizabeth Bathory uh, made a deal, if not with the devil, which with area witches, and not Aryan witches. They were all Hungarians, like she was. Good. And um, uh, uh, predated upon the uh, local population, that must have been some Craigslist, uh, wanted young, personable woman, light work at Palace, generous retirement plan, and Juicy, then... Juicy, a plus. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh and then you, I guess, have to just post the wanted notes ever farther away from the castle as you would run through the population. It's pretty sure, although it's still possible, that she was just railroaded by the hateful Holy Roman Emperor who wanted her land. And she was a strong woman done wrong uh, and forced to make her way in a man's world. The but Hillary Clinton. Of her day. Of her day. But it's also possible <laughs> that she was a monstrous uh, witch who murdered people and lied about it. So, obviously, not the Hillary Clinton of her day. Nope. Nope. With a bad husband who cheated on her. Huh. Uh, anyway. Eerily enough, though, uh, in the course of what she was tried for, cannibalism is mentioned. That if, in, in amongst all the other things that she was alleged to have done, she was supposed to have eaten human flesh. But we should keep in mind that, while she may almost certainly have been a mass murderer, cannibalism was one of the standard things you would accuse people of in 16th century witch trials, and they would do it for differential diagnosis to find out if you were a werewolf. Really? Yeah. There was huge numbers of werewolf trials in France in the latter part of the 16th century because, not coincidentally, there was a lot of famines in France in the latter half of the 16th century, and a lot of people engaged in survival cannibalism, and one suspects that one or two people kind of hopped the fence into... Hurrah, I can eat people cannibalism. (laughs) And those guys got brought up on charges, and their defense was not, they looked so tasty, but I'm a werewolf. Right. And at that time, it was like, well, if you're a werewolf, there are certain law codes that we obey in werewolf trials, and we have to make sure we're not dealing with a witch, but with a werewolf. So it may have been differential diagnosis interrogation that leads to the accusations of cannibalism being attached to Elizabeth Bathory, as opposed to merely... Uh, exciting skin treatments. That's really bizarre. Yeah. It's like people actually getting tested for whether they were a Vulcan or a Romulan. It's like, <laughs> neither of them exist. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the law believes they do. We're super convinced that there are Andorian spies among us. Check everyone to see if they have blue blood. Bad business all Bathory. Not don't Don't take that ad. Even if you think she was railroaded by the Holy Roman Empire, it can't end well for you. No. And it didn't end well for her because she was noble. They needed a much higher degree of evidence to actually execute her. They did not have that evidence. Unlike uh, Gilles Derez, they did not dig up her basement and find a million billion dead bodies. But again, 
Her castle was out in sort of foresty country. So they bricked up her uh, doorway and left. A little cask of Amontillado. Exactly. And she died in that? Well, they didn't unbrick it to find out, so sure, let's say yes. All right. Or if she was a vampire, she's super hungry. Right, if you're going to put that into your role-playing scenario. Yes, indeed you might in the Dracula dossier. Yes. It's like the thing where you release the genie and you've done it after the time where he says, if someone releases me, I will give them three wishes. And you're in the part where he's super mad and he's like, if someone releases me, I will kill them. (laughs) With genies, it's all about the timing. It is all about the timing with genies. They're beings of smokeless fire, you know, so they're... They're already messed up. They're all messed up. Yep. You know, if genies were science, we could talk about genies all day. But sadly, Dottore, I know they're outside your remit. Geniuses are magic. Yes. I talk about science. Grembulon, there's one question that I'm sure every human being listening to this show wants to know. What does human flesh taste like? Well, Dottore, let me tell you. Yeah! For a long time... I had read the descriptions of human flesh being called long pig in the South Pacific, and I figured, that means we taste like pork. Right. Makes sense. We're the other other, other white meat. So why not, right? We are pigs. We are pigs. Tim Allen says we're dogs. Yeah, but dogs, people used to eat dogs. Same deal. People still eat dogs. Yeah, they do. Different conversation. I'll eat a dog. I don't get, you put a dog in front of me, I'll eat it. I'm not proud. <laughs> Note to pet owners everywhere. <laughs> Dottore eats dogs. Dottore eats dogs. I ate Balnaz's eggs. Well, everyone eats eggs. Yeah, but kobold eggs? Doesn't matter. It's basically alligator eggs. You yeah. eat an alligator egg. I'll eat an alligator egg. Yeah, sure. On vacation, why not? Why not? They, but, they eat our eggs. But it turns out that journalist and travel writer William Seabrook was not content to just accept the common explanation. So he was going to go into Africa to hang out with cannibals. So he goes into Africa to hang out with some cannibals, and the cannibals feed him what they said was people stew. And they fed it to him with rice and with uh, red pepper sauce that was so highly spiced, he couldn't really tell what he was eating. And he found out later that they thought, hey, this strange white guy came into our village and said, where's all the people eating at? This is entrapment, man. <laughs> Just because we're some tribe in Africa, they're going to declare us cannibals. They're going to throw us off our land. They We've seen this a hundred times. He had to pull up his shirt and show if he exactly. had a wire. wasn't wearing a wire. So they, he found out later from, I guess, friends. I don't know how you find out later, but he found out later that they'd fed him monkey Aww. and had lied about it. And he was super mad because he'd gone to all this trouble. He'd gone to darkest Africa to hang out with cannibals. He thought his soul was going to hell. He thought his soul was, he was prepped for it, but no. Nope. Nope. Couldn't do it. So he's super mad, he's on his way back to America, and he's bitching about it to his friend in Paris. It's like, I came all this way to eat human flesh, I didn't eat human flesh. That's such a weird complaint. Such a first world complaint. If if you're friends with a writer, you've had this or a similar conversation, (laughs) I guarantee you. So his friend says, oh, if all you wanted to do was eat the human flesh, I know a guy who knows a guy. So, and in, in France again, they were eating human flesh during the siege of Paris in 1870. That was your survival cannibalism again. That said, um, he knows a guy who knows a guy. They go to the Sorbonne Medical School. They find a guy who's been struck dead in a car accident, like that day. And they're like, can I borrow, you know, a steak? And the attendant says, but of course, anything for a right hour. And they cut off a steak and they cut off a roast and they carry it back to the house 
and there's some discussion as to how to prepare it because again, this is France, and I assume William Seabrook has to keep saying no sauce. That was the problem last time. <laughs> they tricked me with the sauce. We're just going to do a straight up American beefsteak with this, and they can't roast it in the oven because then people are like, "Why is your oven smell weird?" And they're like, "Cause we roasted human flesh in it." Sorry. Do you think uh, roasting human flesh would smell significantly different enough that people would? I think if word got around, then people would be all like nervous Nellies about it, even in France. So you got to boil it. If you had a friend in Germany, every, no, they didn't do that. They weren't in England. <laughs> they sp- not monsters. They spit roasted it. <clears throat> hmm. So they got their human flesh spit roasting and they got their human flesh steak frying up in a pan. Salt, pepper, just a little, just little herbs, maybe nothing fancy, just nice stuff. Yeah. And William Seabrook, he said, he, he, he give, give the guy credit. He was like, I was really worried that this was going to taste because the rumor of human flesh is there's two rumors. One, it tastes horrible, and your your very soul and body rebel against the act you're taking part in. You barf out your own you, skeleton. You're like, ah, exactly. You barf out your own skeleton. <laughs> the other word, and this is something that a lot of people have said, is that human flesh has an inexpressible sweetness. And once you go people, you never go beeple, right? Yes. The movie you're, Ravenous. Oh, exactly. You become Wendigo. You always... We didn't even get to the Wendigo, dang it. Maybe next time. When dang it. When dang it. When dang it, ask for it by name. So, he's uh, he's he's worried that there's either going to be this overwhelming compulsion or overwhelming revulsion. Mm-hmm. And he says, shamefully, I was relieved to find it tasted just fine. <laughs> and he compared it. He said that it tasted most like veal. Like good veal. And he says, he defied, and this of course is because he was a writer, he defied anyone to tell the difference between human flesh and veal. Wow. If they were a person of, as he said, ordinary sensibilities. And it's like, you can just imagine that he would love to tell this story while someone was eating veal across from him. Uh, Right? Yeah. But that's that's how it works out. Human flesh, as we got a, a normal... American guy who's eaten normal American restaurant food in 1931 comes back from eating dead Frenchman and says, it tastes like veal. So next time people ask, that's what you taste like. Describing him as a normal guy, I think is a bit of a stretch, considering this is a man who traveled to Africa in the 1930s <laughs> to eat a human being. To eat a part of a human being, not a whole human being. He's not a pig. <laughs> I guess. And he's not a normal man. No, he's a he's a gifted writer. That makes him special and better than other people. Right. He's touched yes. by the gods. Right. He's sublime. A, he's a beautiful hero to be emulated and followed in everything. Right. Well. Especially on Patreon. I guess. Does he have a Patreon campaign? <laughs> um, sure. It's yeah. hard to keep him in stakes. It is. It is hard. There's only so many car accidents in France. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so many bicycles. Right. I guess, you know, he was sort of a pioneer. Yeah. He's sort of like the space monkey who has to go out there and endure the harshness so that we can benefit from his knowledge. Right, yeah. So I suppose I appreciate that. Good. I'm glad you appreciate William Seabrook. Yeah, me too. I think that was his great worry is that people wouldn't appreciate him after he went to all that trouble. <laughs> Did he have any love in his life? Yes, he had a wife, uh, uh, who I assume was okay with this kind of behavior. Yeah. Yeah. How do you kiss the lips of someone who's eaten a human being? I think that you use that as the excuse to say, you go brush those teeth, mister. Not tonight, dear. Not tonight, dear. Not any night. Not 
Not soon. Go have one of those writer affairs that's so popular. Go. Well, he was also a drunk, so, you know, he tasted like whiskey probably more often than he tasted like delicious veal. Veal, we are reaching the end of the show. But before we get there, Ken, do you know what time it is? Uh, plug time? It's time for plugs! It's time for plugs! It's time for plugs, not drugs, but plugs! Give me a hug! Don't... I'm getting mixed messages here. <laughs> Thank you for complying with the <laughs> the hug request in denial of there this time for plugs song. Right. Ken, it's time for plugs. Unlike your podcast, where plugs happen as a nice buffer between the segments... Or seamlessly interlarded into the segments, like marbling in rich, delicious human flesh. Like a Kobe beast. Exactly. <laughs> uh, here we save plugs to the end, because that's the part that people like to listen to, and I'm sure they would never turn off the podcast no! in this segment. Who would turn off the podcast early? That's crazy talk. Sadists. That's like skipping the Kobold tale. Mm -hmm. It's the best part. Kobold's tale. That's a lovely children's animated program. Height, length, width. What is your plug? My plug is... Uh, Tour to Lovecraft, which we perhaps are kickstarting at this very moment, a new and expanded edition of. What is a Tour de Lovecraft? Tour to Lovecraft is my uh, response to the stories of H.P. Lovecraft, and in some cases, my response to other critics' response to the stories of H.P. Lovecraft. It's meant as a sort of a primer, a one-stop shop, a first glance. If you're reading Lovecraft and you want to be backed up and said, man, that story seemed really awesome. And you read me and I'm like, yes, you're correct. That story was really awesome and here's why. Or that story seemed kind of sketchy. And I'm like, you are not wrong. Do not be fooled by its presence between hardcovers. You shouldn't have read that. That was a waste of everyone's valuable time. And so I'm providing uh, not so much a warning, but at least a, a friendly tour guide. Here are the good spots. Here are maybe not so much the good spots. Let's move through these before we are mugged or fed to traveling American journalists. Um, uh, so the Tour de Lovecraft, uh, came out a few years back. It had received, uh, very gratifying reviews and we are expanding it. We are putting it between hardcovers and perhaps depending on when you're listening to this, we are maybe even doing the sequel Tour de Lovecraft, the settings where I talk about the various settings of Lovecraft's fiction and what they mean, uh, symbolically and literarily critically wise. I like that idea because, you know... As a hip millennial like myself, I know uh, all this Cthulhu stuff is just everywhere, all over the internet. I have the plushies, I have the T-shirt, I have the hat that makes me look like I have a squid head. But I don't know anything beyond Call of Cthulhu, which was long and boring to me because I'm a I'm a millennial. Shock. <laughs> uh, so it would well. Be it's because it was less sciency. I think that's what it was. You know, I don't like it when geometry is explained as inconceivable or uh, beyond comprehension. When Lovecraft gets into how the geometry is all wrong about a setting, I, I'm just like, fuck you, dude. Yeah. That's what you're I'm a, like. You're a big Riemannian. You're like, I can, do, I can go outside set theory. I can go outside topology. I know all about space. I don't know what three of those things mean. Aha! But here's the thing. You're just a poser. If you saw an obtuse angle that was supposed to be acute, you'd go bananas just like Johansson. <laughs> Here's the thing. Lovecraft's uh, ideas, his monsters, are very interesting. They're super cool. And he paints an interesting situation where there's a, a like a universal dread that can happen. Something in the zeitgeist where 
It's affecting everybody, except yeah. the artists happen to get it more than others. Because they're more sensitive. Yes. Uh, Lovecraft's per, uh, perhaps hatred of many different types of people is very off-putting, and it's remarkable that he's so popular nowadays, and people can cast a blind eye to some of his language. I'm not sure that people cast a blind eye, per se. There's a good deal of eye-casting going on uh, against old Howard. And certainly, yep, he was, uh, as we say on Tumblr, problematic as hell. Yeah. Uh, but he was also one of the three people who created pretty much all popular modern culture. And he was the greatest horror writer since Poe. And neither of those ain't be true just because he had issues with literally everyone who was not white Anglo-Saxon Protestants from a certain part of New England. Yeah. Uh, and maybe part of old England <laughs> in uh, his good days. Yeah, I guess it's like the um, the JPL scientist who is a Satanist, Alistair. Sure, Crowley. yeah, it's like that. <laughs> no, the JPL guy. Oh, Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons. Yeah, John Whiteside Parsons. Yeah, who helped advance space technology, but also weird, creepy Satanist. Yeah, although his Satanism, again, this is perhaps a different topic, but his Satanism was more performative, I think, than it was. Uh, Virgin sacrificing. You think he was just kind of wearing it to be all cool? I think he believed it, but I think the Satanism that he believed in was sort of the arch-libertarianism, and in 1948 that sounded more like Satanism because we didn't have the tech industry yet. Ah. Yeah. Someday. Anyway. Anyway. So you are, you may be doing a Kickstarter for Tour de Lovecraft. For, and if I'm not, I'm going to do it really soon, so pay attention to Kenneth Height on Twitter or my Facebook or wherever it is you pay attention to me already. At Kenneth Hyde on Twitter is the bestest way to stay au courant with me or on the Facebooks. If you can, if anyone can still go on Facebook in October, if it hasn't just become radioactive thanks to the election. Facebook has become a little MySpacey. Yeah. I, I don't like to dwell there as much as I used yeah. to. I'm a Twitter man now. You're a Twitter man now. A simple like Twitter fella. Short and snappy. Exactly. Um, wh what about Ken writes about stuff? Uh, Ken writes about stuff is on hiatus as I complete the fall of Delta Green. Fall of Delta Green? Hasn't Fall of Delta Green already fell already? It fell in the past. It fell in 1970, but I'm just writing about it and making a game of it. I see. For some reason, now, Ken, I'm a Dottore. I know. I'm a man of science. I can tell. I have a very serious life. By your hat. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and my fine Renaissance garb. Your look attire. at these. Look at these. Flowing scholarly sleeves. sleeves. Indeed. And for my, holding books. And my neck rough. And my voluminous pons. You are a voluminous ponce, it's true. Thank you. Yes. Um, <clears throat> Fall of Delta Green, you and Robin DeLaws have spoke of before. Yes. Are you doing a reversion of it? I am doing The Fall of Delta Green, which is a gumshoe adaptation of the game Delta Green. Uh. Delta Green is itself its own game based very strongly on the Delta Green source books for Call of Cthulhu. Oh. The Delta Green role-playing system is similar to the Call of Cthulhu role-playing system. The Fall of Delta Green role-playing system is similar to the Trail of Cthulhu role-playing system. Jesus fucking Christ. And you see why I just say, I'm writing the Fall of Delta Green. <laughs> it's a real... You can go deep in the woods in a real hurry with this stuff. Yeah, it's a real pillowcase of doorknobs. It is. Greased up, ready for action. Yeah. So you're writing the Fall of Delta Green. I'm writing the Fall of Delta Green now. Do we have a time when we can expect to have this in our hot little hands? Uh, I think that we are, all of us, hoping very, very strongly for Gen Con next year. So August, summer of next year, you should be able to 
put it in your hot little hands, always depending on your hands' degree of hotness and proximity to major shipping areas. And assuming that America is not a smoking ruin. Yes. Absent the apocalypse <laughs> next August. Sounds good. Anything else coming down the pipeline? Uh, Ken and Robin talk about stuff, always present, always in uh, welcoming to other people who wish to Patreon us uh, on, the, on the Patreon. Um, we are doing the Hideous Creatures uh, from the old Ken Writes About Stuff as its own book. It'll be a Trail of Cthulhu bestiary full of multiple takes and multiple versions and multiple explorations of many, many Lovecraft creatures. So it'll be a full-on exciting bestiary of Lovecraftian monstrosities for Trail of Cthulhu, and we will be doing that once I get Fall of Delta Green done. You have a full plate ahead of you. I do. I have many full plates ahead of me. Some of them containing veal. Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, Kenneth Height, thank you very much for being on Blaster Podcast. Thank you, Dottore, for making me of hospitableness. <laughs> Welcome. There's the exit, Ken. You can use it anytime. Anytime. Anytime now. Anytime now. All these mirrors can be a long night. So confusing. (laughs) The Blaster Podcast theme song was composed by Stephen Poon, www.timecrashband.com. Blaster Podcast is a member of the Chicago Podcast Cooperative. If you like my show, you might like some of the other podcasts you'll find there, like Alka Hollywood. It's an awesome show. I've been on it many times, and at the end, you get a drinking game out of it. Tasty consequences. 